Wow. Even a dead preacher could preach after that. God bless you. You may be seated this morning, and happy Father's Day. I am so glad to see you. Let's give all the dads a great big hand this morning. So glad to see you today. Dads, thanks. I'm wrapping up a series today called Making a Difference, and I want to talk. Excuse me. We had a great service, first service. We, um, I want to talk to you today about how men make a difference. This is not, um, according to a lot of the secular press, the best time to be a dad, not the best time to be a man. It seems like a lot of things that you read and look at right now, men are the enemy. But men are not the enemy, just like women are not the enemy. It's people who do evil things that are the enemy. It's people who are unfaithful that are the enemy. So today I want to wrap this up. We've talked about how your story makes a difference, how your giving in life makes a difference. And even though today I'm talking to men, you can take, whether you're a man or woman or a child, teenager, you can take from this message. If you're an employer or colleague or line worker, you can take encouragement from this message. Because all of us can make a difference in life. Wednesday night here at church, we were just absolutely overwhelmed with joy. Mary Grace, would you stand up just a second, sweetheart? Give Mary Grace a hand. This is who you've been praying for. God bless you. You can be seated, honey. Mary Grace is an ICU nurse at receiving. She had a stroke, had to replace some blood vessels in her brain two weeks ago, and She showed up in church Wednesday night, and I was just absolutely floored and overjoyed and to see her and see you here today on Father's Day with your parents. And then we left Mary Grace and went to pray with Bonnie. Pastor Rick went with me to pray with Bonnie Kish. When you've pastored the church as long as I pastored the church, you go into the same rooms where you've prayed with so many other people at. In that particular room, I prayed with so many people in that particular room in ICU where Bonnie was at and after having a stroke on Wednesday morning, the day her daughter retired from Flat Rock High School as a teacher, and then the next morning Bonnie went to be with Jesus. In our first service, I was standing in the back while we were singing, and I was thinking about you, Mary Grace, and thinking about Bonnie. Both are miracles. The fact that Bonnie is not here doesn't mean there's not a miracle. Bonnie trusted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior a long time ago. Bonnie is well. Bonnie is whole. Bonnie is in the presence of Jesus Christ. The ones to grieve for is not Bonnie, but it's for Dave, her husband, and her family today. I'll be meeting with them at 3 o'clock today, and so if you have time or if you have a moment or can set a reminder on your phone, just pray for the family as we sit down to plan the funeral for Tuesday. In the first service, we also had George Nixon who was here that we thought was going to pass away. And George, God just brought him through. Now, he's quite a few pounds lighter. He told me, Pastor, I've lost over 40 pounds. So if you need to lose some weight, George is down to a 34-inch waist, and he'll be happy to tell you how to lose it. But it was so good to see him here this morning as well. But I want to talk to you about how you make a difference. 
what sticks out to me, Mary Grace, in your story and is that Mary Grace doesn't remember much, but she remembers the word of God being spoken over her and prayer. And you hear a lot of people sometimes lifting up and praising that which is destructive to life, as though that's good, and if you do that, then you're somehow another liberated and freer. And then you hear a lot of people criticizing condemning, calling into question the truth of God's word as though that was bad. And yet, the scripture says that the entrance of thy words bring life. Yeah. It's amazing to me that that's what Mary Grace remembers is the word of God. It's amazing to me that after all the times that people have tried to destroy the word, it's still here and it's still being preached around the world today. And I want to talk to you about how you can take the Word, the Word of God in your life, not where you're thumping a Bible every day, but where you're living the Bible and how the words you speak can make an eternal difference in people's lives. In the 90s, <clears throat> Jim Davison and his friend Mike fell through an 80-foot crevasse in Washington State where they were mountain climbing. Those were those days when I dreamed of being able to travel the world and climb mountain peaks and tackle some of the biggest mountains in the world. Those were the days when <clears throat> I'd sit around and talk with Becky about what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn how to climb these peaks and, that I saw in Europe, that I saw in Asia. A few years ago, I was in... I've hiked a significant portion of the Appalachian Trail from Maine all the way down to Georgia. Not all of it, just significant portions of it, but I decided to tackle the Appalachian Trail in its steepest part, and that's from Springer Mountain to Blood Mountain. Going up is fine. It's coming down those mountains that I realized the toll that running had taken on my knees over the years. And I realized that I didn't possess the knees anymore to do that kind of stuff because getting to the top is important, but how many of you can agree getting back down to the bottom is also important as well? In two weeks, my sons and I will be mountain uh, rock climbing together in the North Georgia mountains, and we're looking forward to that, going with a friend of mine who takes people on rock climbing tours on the mountains, and we're just looking so forward to doing that together. But Jim was a mountain climber. And when his friend and he fell through that 80-foot crevasse, his friend died upon impact. It was why I was reading the story, because at that time I had big dreams. But Jim writes about the five hours it took him to climb 80 foot out of that crevasse. He had no snow climbing, wall climbing experience. But in his mind, he says, what got me out of that crevasse was my father's words. You see, his father was a contractor, and as a little boy and a teenager, Jim's dad would have him out on the job, working steep roofs, climbing communication towers and painting those communication towers, and Jim's mother got very upset. Ms. Davison got very upset with her husband 
And she began telling Jim what all could happen to him, how he could fall, how he could get hurt, how he could lose his life. And one night, Jim's father looked at her and he says, you are poisoning our son with fear. You have to stop this. I know you love him and I love him. But Jim is capable of much more than you're giving him credit for. Let me make a man out of him. And Jim says that it's those words of his father that kept coming over and over in his mind when he felt like giving up, when he was fatigued and he was injured, that he climbed that 80 foot out of that crevasse and survived and went on to write a book about it. I was reading another book. After the first time I went to Africa, I was fascinated by the Sahara Desert. Did you know the word Sahara means to provoke thirst? So when you say the word Sahara, you're talking about something that makes you thirsty. And, but did you also know that underneath the Sahara, there's an entire forest. There's the remains of trees and forests that have been buried by the sands because of the changing of weather patterns and deforestation. And in this book on the Sahara, the writer, it's not a Christian book, just talking about the Sahara, talks about a man, a truck driver, who had a route across the Sahara and his truck broke down. And he was miles and miles from help. There was no cell phone. He knew that when he didn't arrive, they would send somebody out to search for him. And it was over three days till they got there. And although he had plenty of food, he wouldn't eat because to eat makes you thirsty. Your body needs water to digest food. And so he refused to eat and he stayed under the truck at night. He dug a trench under the truck trying to find cooler sand. But over the three days without water, he began to thirst so bad that he eventually turned to the only water he had and he began to take sips out of the radiator. And you know that's poison. But when people are thirsty, they'll take a sip from anywhere they can find it. When teenagers don't get the words of encouragement they need, they're going to go find that word of encouragement. When wives don't get the words of encouragement they need, they're going to go find that words of encouragement. When employees don't get the words of encouragement that they need, they're going to go find that encouragement. Words really do matter. When the church fails to preach the word of God and substitute some other gospel or substitute some other thing for the word, then the Bible says that people begin to dry up and they perish from thirst because of a lack of the word of God. And so they begin to turn to other things. And so what I want to take you to is not a traditional Father's Day passage, but dads, what was left written for us in the word of God of how our words can make a difference and we can be men that make a difference in other people's lives. So would you stand with me out of respect for the scripture and let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. The apostle Paul writes, we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living. 
so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves, you yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know, we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, urged you. And that word plead, for those of you that are from a Pentecostal charismatic background, it's parakleos. It means to comfort. It means to encourage. It's the word used for the Holy Spirit. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Father, I thank you. I thank you not only that this is the word of the Lord, and that heaven and earth may pass away, but every single letter of this word will survive. God, we can build our lives upon it. As new dads, as dads in the teenage years, as dads like myself who are now granddads, Lord, we can build our lives on a solid foundation. God, as employers, we can build our businesses on this. As employees, Lord, we can have a good relationship with our employers on a result of this. As neighbors, and yes, Lord, moms and students as well. And God, though I speak to the heart of men this morning, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would speak to every heart here today. And if someone has not crossed the line yet and given their heart to you, they'll sense in this message how deep and how wide and high the love of God is for them, I pray. And everybody agreed together and said, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Well, obviously, what I want you to know is that the words that I speak make a difference. The words I speak as a man, as a husband, as a dad, as a granddad, as a neighbor, as a pastor, the words that I speak make a difference in people's lives. And people are going to turn somewhere to find some place to find encouragement, to find living water, to find that that will satisfy and slake their thirst. Everybody knows that they're unique, but not everybody knows that they're valuable. Some people believe that they're unique and therefore they're worthless. Some people believe that they're unique and therefore it goes to their heads and they think that they can do without everybody else. But sooner or later, you come to a place in life if somebody with wisdom speaks to you, it helps you to see that your life matters or helps you to see that you really are not as important as you think you are. It's the people around you that matter. I've recommended to a lot of you over the years the book Love is the Killer App by Tim Sanders. Tim is a leadership coach and was a former solutions officer for Yahoo. Becky and I went to hear Tim speak a few years ago. We drove down to Chicago to hear him speak, and what a stirring and challenging message that Tim brought. Tim told a story about a man that he worked with named Steve, and Steve had a company, and one day, Steve decided after hearing Tim speak that he would go to each of his employees and sit down with them and tell them how important they were to the company and how important they were to the vision of their company. So Steve went employee by employee, taking a little bit of time, looking up their backgrounds, getting the information from 
H, from HR to be able to say what they were about, and he would just go and tell them. And he visited with one man in a cubicle named Lenny. And if you've ever worked in a cubicle, you know how impersonal that can be and how voices and sounds carry all over the place, and everybody knows everybody's business. But Steve went in, told Lenny how much he valued, spent time with him, talking with him. And before he left, though it was kind of awkward for him as a man, he just began practicing what Steve said. He says, give everybody a hug. Just hug people. Let them know they matter. And Steve got up and gave Lenny a hug and thanked him again for his contribution to his company. And he said to him, Lenny, what you do here really matters. What you do here is really important. And I just wanted you to know I appreciate it. A few days later, Steve got an Xbox from, from Lenny. And when he called, had his secretary to call and find out what the Xbox was all about, Lenny told the secretary, and so she had him to come up and to talk to Steve. Steve came in and to meet with Lenny, and Lenny said, you know, he said that was the first time that anybody ever came to me and told me my life mattered. He said, recently my mother died, my dad has been gone, I haven't seen my dad in years, we never talk. And he said, after my mother died, I felt like I had nothing worth living for anymore. And he said, I went out and bought a nine millimeter. And he said, for months I've been sitting down eating ramen noodles and listening to Nirvana at night. And he said, I've got to where I would practice, I would put the gun in my mouth, I would fill it in between my lips, I would, I've got to where, Steve, I would even pull the trigger just a little bit. And as I contemplating, listening to the music of Nirvana, how I was going to commit suicide and how that it wouldn't really matter. He said, but when you came into my office and you told me that I mattered and that I was important to this company, suddenly I realized I had something worth living for. So I took the gun to a pawn shop. And you, one of the things that you said when we were talking was that you loved your kids and you'd like to have an Xbox, but right now your budget wouldn't allow it. So I went and bought you an Xbox with this gun with the money I got from selling this gun. And I want you, every time you look at that Xbox, Steve, to remember, you saved my life. Your words made a difference in my life. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? The Bible says in Proverbs 18 and verse 21, words kill and words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. You choose the kinds of words you're going to speak. You choose the kinds of words that you give. And believe it or not, a lot of our success as dads depends upon the words that we choose to use with our children. Our marriages depend upon the words that we choose to use with our wife. You see, and what you have to look at is it's small doses at the time. It's not trying to dump it all at one time, but it's learning how to give those small words of appropriate encouragement at times. And I know that today I'm not blind. I read the paper. I read the magazines. I see what's being said. The words of fathers are being de-emphasized. As I said earlier, right now being a man is not very popular, but I've got news for you. You can't do without us. Can somebody say amen to that? You can't do without us, you know. And so I want you to know your words really matter. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes two things that are kind of different, but it's something that I think every son and every daughter wants to know from their dad. We were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. I look at that verse and I go, Dad, I, God, I, I am nothing like my mother. I am nothing like Becky. What does this mean to be like a mother? And it's that nurturing attitude. It's that nurturing spirit. And then in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes and he says, fathers, nurture your children. 
There's a part of us that we can learn how to nurture and encourage without losing our masculinity. But then he goes on to write, he says, we treated each of you the way a father treats his own children. The second thing I want you to know that your words make a difference is your words have got to be built upon loving relationships. Because without a relationship, your words are ineffective. Unless you take time to build a relationship with your children, time to build a relationship with your teenagers, then your words are ineffective. The people who matter in my life are the people who have relationship with me. The people whose words matter the most are the people whose words have relationship with me. In verse 8, Paul says, we love just so much. Effective speech, effective words take place in the context of a loving relationship. That's how often do you express affection to your children? How often do you express loving affirmation to your children? And as I was praying this week, it wasn't where I had planned to go, but suddenly I began to think about because I know there are many men in our congregation that before you came to know Christ, you were married not once, but maybe a couple of times. You have children by maybe more than one wife. I know that there are men in our congregation and women in our congregation, you had no relationship with your father. We've sat down and talked about that, how that your father was basically absent from your life. Some of you that we've talked and we prayed together, we've talked about how to forgive a dad, how to forgive a father. I went not too long ago to the cemetery to pray with a man who wanted to forgive his father, and his father had gone. There was no relationship. His father wasn't a Christian, but somehow and others, we stood and we shared the word of God, and we prayed at the foot of his father's grave, and we prayed there, and he says, I forgive you, dad. I know his dad couldn't hear. I know his dad wasn't there, but for him to let that go and to weep at that grave, somehow or another brought closure to his life. But before that time happens to you, sir, before that time happens to you, because you're afraid to confront or you're afraid to deal with it, I want you to listen to the words of a missionary to the Philippines. When Sarah wrote these words, she had not gone to the Philippines yet. Her dad had divorced her mom, left her mom, left the family, taken up with another woman, and eventually gotten married. And there was this long relationship with them. But listen to Sarah's words. I spent last week at the beach in Florida relaxing with my family. The week was for eating fresh seafood and sitting by the beach, throwing the frisbee and catching up with my dad and his new wife. My parents are divorced, and that process took about nine years. I had an erratic and intensely negative feelings for and about my dad through my high school and college years. Those feelings have mellowed out, and as adults, we get along okay. Now, I want you to stop right there for just a moment and catch the power of that. Intensely negative feelings, separated, not seeing each other. But don't ever give up and don't ever forget how much your children need your affirmation. And I can't tell, listen to me, listen to your pastor. I wasn't born yesterday. I can't tell you how many times I've heard these foolish, foolish, foolish words. When they come and say, I'm sorry, then we can rebuild a relationship. That will never happen because of a hard heart. You don't wait on another sorry. God did not wait on you to say he was sorry. God sent his son to die for you while you were still enemies of the cross because he loved you so much. There is power in loving and healing words this morning. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that today? We live 1,200 miles apart, and we don't see each other often, but I'm always glad to visit him when I can. 
The beach trip was his and his wife's initiative, and they provided a big place for us all to meet up and spend some time together. But at the weekends, my dad said something to me that left my mind quiet and full of one thought. At the end of a perfect day of hunting for shells with the girls, we had to pack up the car and pass around goodbye hugs. My dad hugged me and kissed me. His arms are still so strong and tight. No one's hugs feel like his. He told me he was so proud of me. And I have to admit, after hearing those words from my dad, my 29-year-old self was filled. My 29-year-old self was filled. I guess my dad's been proud of me. I'm at least sure he's not disappointed in who I am or what I've done with my life. But hearing him say it to me despite all our past and its residue, despite my independence from him, despite the deeply affirming relationship I have with my husband, it was like I needed nothing else. Sir, you give to your children something that nobody else in this world can give. Becky's father gives to her something that I can never give her as her husband. I give to Becky something that that is different and unique as a husband, but Becky nor any of my close friends in Christ, any of those people that I spoke of earlier can give to me what only Buford Clanton could put into my life, and that was that he was proud of me, he loved me, he believed in me. Those words every child longs to hear from their father. I was leaving for an international trip one time, and we were in the front yard, and I can still see it as clear as day, even the car that I owned at the time. And we'd already been out and had dinner with my parents and had dinner with Becky's parents. I was going to be gone for quite an extended period of time. And suddenly, just before I was to leave for Atlanta to catch my plane, my dad's pickup truck, red pickup truck, slid into the driveway. And my dad was always a bit of a speed demon and drove in ways that I would have got spanked for for driving that way. But... He slid in, jumped out of the truck, ran across the front yard, threw his arms around me and hugged me. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Denny boy, I am so proud of you. And I didn't know what was going on. I thought he was having a breakdown. And he had tears in his eyes. I said, Dad, what's wrong? He He said, I just wanted to tell you. It was over 20 miles from his house to my house. And he said, I just wanted to come tell you I was proud of you and I love you. And I said, well, trying to make light because I didn't want to cry, you know? And I said, well, was mama not proud of me too? Where's she at? And he says, she doesn't know I'm here. This is for you and for me. And he kissed me on my face and he said, I just want you to know I'm proud of you. Friends, I can live the rest of my life on those words knowing that my father went to heaven proud of me. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me today. Dads give to their children something that nobody else can give to them this morning. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise for the men in our life. (laughs) Hallelujah. But a good dad also shares the good news of Jesus Christ, for sharing the good news makes a difference. The gospel is not bad news. The bad news is if you live your life without Jesus. The bad news is if you live your life, you know that your life is being torn apart by sin. You know that there's something wrong with life. The bad news is when you live under the wrath and the punishment of the sin of your life, under the wrath of a God that will judge and punish sin one day. The good news is that God loved you so much that he wanted to save you. 
But the most powerful form of communicating that is not what I do from this pulpit. It's what you do as a father in your homes. You see, transparency is what makes the difference. It's not the words. It's life lived in relationship. My best memory, speaking to my dad, are, are the ones where suddenly I realized my dad had a soul. I realized that my dad cared about eternal things. I still remember when that began to dawn on me. I have his Bible in a glass case in my office, and, and I often pull it out and just thumb through his notes and thumb through what he wrote down and see things he wrote for me or he prayed for me or prayed for my sisters or for one of his grandchildren. It's almost like being able to hold a part of him in my life. But I can see dad, when we would be praying, dad's hand would come to his brow like this, and when he would be praying, his hand would tremble because he was so reverent of the Lord. When he would read the Bible, he read the newspaper every day and he read the Bible every day, but when he read that Bible, his fingers would lay across his lips like this, and mom would say, Buford, take your lips off, your, your fingers off your lips. And daddy would pull him away, and in a few minutes he'd be back reading, and they'd come right back this. I, I knew he was focused. I knew he was thinking about things that really mattered in life. And suddenly, when as a child, I knew that my dad knew that he had a soul. When I knew that my dad cared about eternal things, when I knew that my dad cared about Jesus Christ, it made a difference in my life. For the gospel without a personal relationship with somebody is kind of cold and sterile. But when you have a father, Father or a mother in that home who has a personal relationship with Jesus, suddenly you experience the power of God in a loving relationship. Listen to what Paul wrote. We shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Would you read that with me? We shared with you not only God's good news, but our One more time, our Men, don't be afraid to let people see your soul. And I know that's kind of a mystical, ethereal word, and I don't do well with that, so let me see if I can help you with this. You may want to share this with your family and with your friends when you talk about your soul. When we talk about a soul, we're talking about your values. We're talking about our struggles in life. We're talking about the decisions. We're talking about the mistakes that we've made, the prayers that we make, what we read from the Bible and what we read in good books. It's what happens in his book, The Anatomy of a Soul, Christian psychiatrist writes about the frontal cortex of the brain and what happens when people pray and what happens when people read the Word of God. It's a fascinating study of what happens in somebody's brain as they begin to work. And, and, and the soul is found in that little part of us, our brain. And that's where you have those things, that, those virtues, those values, those things that mean more than anything to you. You see, when you allow your kids to see your mistakes and you own up to them, you're teaching them how to walk humbly. When you allow your kids to see how you struggle through making the decision, you're allowing your kids to see you grapple with God and wrestle with God. And oftentimes, if you were here during my series on Genesis, what did it mean when Jacob wrestled with God? There was no way Jacob was ever going to defeat God. But God blessed Jacob because he was willing to wrestle with someone bigger than him, tougher than him, could always win and always beat him. And suddenly when God touched Jacob and he put that limp in his step for the rest of the life, Jacob was reminded of the night until he wrestled with God and got an answer from God, and he built his life upon that promise. Sometimes your kids will see you make those kind of decisions where you wrestle with God till it almost cripples you. And they learn when they face those problems in their life how to get a hold of God for themselves. Fourthly, I would say, 
If you want to make a difference, diligently work for your family. That will make a difference. Diligently work for your family. Last night when Becky and I went to bed, we flipped on the television while we were getting ready for bed, and there was a commercial coming on that said fully over 50% of the children in Michigan get their meal at their public school each day. I looked at my wife and I said, what are those children going to do during the summer? What's wrong in a state as prosperous and as blessed as Michigan where half of the children are not able to get a meal unless they go to their school? We know that there are some dads that are marginally employed and we want to pay taxes to help people like that. We know that there are some people who are unemployed because the companies are closed. We want to help people like that. But the mothers that I've talked to over the years, the tax preparers in our congregation that I've talked to, the attorneys that I've talked to have told me the stories of going after deadbeat dads that won't pay their child support, and their kids grow up poor, their kids grow up trying to scrape or get by or get into trouble while they go off and gamble or drink or whatever they do. Say, Pastor, please don't be so harsh on Father's Day. Listen, it needs to be said again. When you become a husband, when you become a dad, part of that covenant is you agree to diligently work to provide for your family. If you're not willing to work, you're not ready to get married, and you're certainly not ready to be a dad. And honey, if you're going with that kind of guy that's not willing to work, stop it today. Don't be a fool, and don't end up paying the price for an immature boy and the body of a man. Men work. I could go down today and claim if I wanted to disability benefits for being legally disabled, but I've worked my whole life and I'm so proud of the fact that I've never had to. There's something about working that gives you a sense of dignity. There's something about working that gives you a sense that you matter in life. When you talk to a man, oftentimes men don't go, well, show me your soul. (laughs) They go, what do you do? Well, I work for Ford or Fords. I work for GM or I'm a millwright or I own my business or I take care of lawns. We identify with what we do. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You see, all dads want to hang out with their buds. All dads want to hang out with their buds. All dads want to play golf with their friends. All dads want to play softball with their friends. And listen, if we're not playing golf or playing softball with our buddies, we want to watch sports with our buddies. That's just part of being a man. Before our first sons were born, the man who was the golf pro for Bowden Golf Course, Macon's uh, top-notch golf course, Gave his heart to Christ, and he and his wife Barbara began to attend our church and worship with us, and we became really good friends, and once a week, we'd play golf together. I loved it. Sometimes twice a week, we'd play golf together. Sometimes he'd call me up in the evening and say, Pastor, if you've got to get anything going on, come on down. We'll, we'll play the back nine or the front nine together, and we'll get a hamburger or something afterwards. And Oh, it was great. I had free golf. I had the golf pro as a free teacher. I was in heaven and just didn't know it. And then children came along. I still went to play golf. Becky said one day, you can't do this anymore. 
I go, why? They're just babies. She says, they're going to grow up. I said, they don't know if I'm not here. She goes, yes, they do. And so suddenly they hit childhood years, and it really dawned on me. I needed to be home more often. And suddenly I was telling my friend, I can't come and play golf as often. We play once a week, but I was playing swords in the backyard. I want to tell you something. There is nobody meaner with a stick than Christopher Ryan Clanton. And you see, you can't really defend yourself because you'll go to prison for defending yourself, but they can beat the snot out of you, and they're just praised and high-fived by everybody. There was nobody more clever than Andrew Clanton at hiding stuff and playing spies and secret stuff. Benjamin and Amy came along. Life became even more challenging. Do I still like to hang out with my friends? Of course I do. But I had to redefine what fun was because fun also had to include my children and include my kids and include my wife. Dads, hear me this morning. Diligently working for our families doesn't mean that we work 24-7. Diligently working means we have this balance in life where we work and we play because one day they're going to go away and you will never regret the time you spent with them maybe sacrificing that extra car, maybe sacrificing that extra golf day. Spend that time with those kids because you want to hear them say to you, Dad, I'm proud of you. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that as well? A congruent life makes a difference. And what I mean by congruent is when your walk matches your talk. It doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean authenticity. Congruency in life has never meant that you're perfect. There is no perfect human being. There is no perfect man, no perfect woman, no perfect pastor. But look at what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. You know, I have buried quite a few people from this church. I reflected this week over the lives of some of those people that I buried in what their children and their families have told me, just like I'll be meeting with Dave's family today, Bonnie's family today in my study. Sometimes I will hear from children painful things, but these are typically where someone has not lived for Christ. But there is a common quality, and Rick, I invite you into most of these, so you can ask Pastor Rick about this, I'm not glossing over anything. There is a common quality of the Christian men and women that I've buried. When their children talk about them, they talk about the congruency of their life. My dad wasn't perfect, but he knew how to say, I'm sorry. My dad wasn't a perfect Christian, but he loved God. My dad wasn't there as many times as I'd like for him to be, but I knew when he wasn't there, he still loved me because congruency doesn't mean perfection. I'm far from the perfect dad. You say, how do you know? My children told me so. <laughs> and trust me, if you're a young dad here, as good a daddy as you think you are, the day's going to come when they're going to tell you what you could have done better. And so I speak as a fellow suffering pilgrim with you this morning. There is no perfect father. But there are some things that have to be right and some things that have to be wrong. And in our home, our children knew what was right and what was wrong. 
In our home, there was a balance. We had one child in particular. He knew Becky's voice. Becky would say, it's time for dinner. Okay. It's time for dinner. I'll be there in five minutes. If you don't come to dinner right now, Mom, I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> you know, I'd often say to Becky, especially in those days when I was traveling, Becky, you can't be Miss Tenderleaf. You're going to have to put your foot down. These boys will run all over you if you don't. That's what boys do. They're full of testosterone. They're not like sweet little girls and little daughters, you know. Make them fear you. Choke them now. Beat them now. <laughs> Becky cry. Do it. Save their life. I came home one time and Andrew come up to me and says, Dad, I'm so glad you're home. <laughs> I says, why? Mom's mean. <laughs> yes! She got it. Now they love and worship the ground she walks upon. You see, congruity means there's things is right and there's things are wrong. And the reason this is so important is the, the, in the book of 1 Samuel, we're told about a prophet, a priest, Eli, who did not restrain his sons. That's the word the Bible uses. He did not restrain his sons, Phineas and Hophni. He knew what they were doing. He knew that it was wrong. But because he failed to restrain his sons, God brought judgment upon his entire family. Paul says, we lived our lives, and you are witnesses. Listen to me. Don't you miss this. Don't miss this. You are witnesses, and so is God. God is witness to how we're loving and raising our sons and daughters today and living out our marriages. And I am so glad that he is perfectly present with us today. Can we give him another hand of praise for that? And then finally this morning, you have to choose to live an encouraging life because choosing to live an encouraging life makes a difference. It's a choice. You can be a discouragement or you can be an encouragement. You can be their biggest coach or you can be the one that drags them down. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he writes, and I, I took this from the message this time, you experienced it all firsthand. With each of you, we were like a father with a child, holding your hand, whispering encouragement, showing you step by step how to live well before God, how to live well, who called us into his own kingdom and to this delightful life. Many of you saw the movie, I believe it was called Blindside, Leanne Tui and her husband, Sean, took in a foster child, took in a boy who was growing up in a drug-infested, thug-infested, or gang-infested neighborhood and just trying to get by. Michael Orr went on to play football in the NFL. What a lot of people don't know is that Leanne and Sean wrote another book. I discovered it when I was, Becky and I went to Washington, D.C. this last October, and we spent an afternoon with... Senator Jim Inhofe, one of the senators there adopted or took in a, a foster child after he was processed out of the foster care system. Adopted is not the right word, but just got him a job. Because one of the concerns of the foster care system right now is 18-year-olds, they are processed out of the system 
and they have no jobs, no place to go. The orphanage that we support in Bangladesh, those children in Bangladesh have a better treatment plan than children here in America do because that orphanage that the Assemblies of God runs there in Dhaka, those children are taught to work, they're paid for their work. There's not much, but they tithe, they start a savings account that's managed for them, nothing's ever touched out of it. They're taught marketable skills to get a job with as soon as they come out of the orphanage. Most of them get jobs right away because their skills are in demand in Bangladesh. Those who are academically excelling and want to go on to college, there are people who step up to the plate to provide a college education for them. So when those children start out in life, they start out much different than other abandoned children in Bangladesh. They start out with a relationship with Christ. They start out having been disciplined to tithe all their life. They start out with a savings account, and better yet, a discipline to save 10% of everything they earn. And they go right to work. But that doesn't happen here in America. So the senator, under the influence of the Tuis, took in this young foster boy and put him to work in his mailroom, gave him his first job. Turns out the kid had a knack for organization. The young man got the mailroom so organized and everything together. One day the senator just happened to walk through to check on him, and when he saw how organized the mailroom was, he began to praise the boy, tell him how good he'd done. It had never been this organized. What a difference he was making. You hear the similarity between Steve and his friend Lenny? What a difference he was making and how much he mattered. And then the senator walked on, not thinking that much about what he had said. But a few minutes later, as he was walking out of his office past the mailroom, he saw the young man in there crying. And he went in, and you'll follow along with me on the screen from their book in a heartbeat. He walks over to the boy and says, son, are you okay? Yes, the intern answered quietly, wiping his tears away. Did I say something to offend you? No, sir. Well, what's wrong? And after a short silence, the young man said, that's the first time in my life anyone's told me that I did something good. You see, you will never know the power of encouragement. And if you're not a dad today, then choose to be an encouragement to somebody else. Choose to catch them doing something right. Choose to look for the good things. There are some of you that when you come through those doors and you hug my neck, you whisper a word of encouragement in my ear that will carry me the rest of the week. Sometimes I hope I whisper something into your ear. But we all know what it means to be encouraged. It's the reason the Apostle Paul says, I have determined not to speak discouraging words, but only that which encourages and builds up. Paul goes on to write, he says, I showed you step by step how to live well before God. And then he described what the Christian life was. Yes, the Christian life will include suffering sometimes. Yes, the Christian life will include battle sometimes. Yes, the Christian life will include sac sacrifice sometimes. But friends, we suffer, we sacrifice for those things that we believe in. And Paul describes what I've discovered and I'm sure you've discovered. Living for Christ is a delightful life. He says, we showed you how to live this delightful life. I am so glad to be born again this morning and filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God. Can we give him another hand of praise today? What a difference if Eli had taught his sons Phineas and Hophni that. So dads, I'm calling you this morning to step up to the plate. 
And so this morning, let me just close it like this before we pray. Especially if your kids are still at home, have dinner with your family daily. Study after study shows, just eating with your family, shutting off the television, shutting off your phones, forbidding texting and tweeting and all that stuff, just spending time. One study I read this week, I'd be glad to share with you, overwhelming majority of girls who have dinner nightly with their families for their fathers present, those girls remain virgins till they get married. They understand and receive encouragement, affirmation, and relationship, and don't perceive having to use their bodies to get a boy's affection and encouragement. You see, like that truck driver, there comes a place where you'll become so thirsty in life, you'll drink from a poison well. You'll drink from that which will slowly kill you. But as dads, as men, we can ensure that our children drink from the living water if we build these kind of relationships. Secondly, I'd say they won't always be in the back seat, so take advantage of the car. Now, nobody, nobody is more grateful for iPods and movies on a long trip than yours truly. A long trip. But some of the best conversations I have with my kids was taking them to school, the days when I picked them up from school. Chris still recounts one of the life-changing moments in his life was coming home from school discouraged, and we pulled over into a parking lot, and we talked together and prayed together. Shut the phone off. If they call, they'll call back if it's important. If they're dying, you're not going to stop them from dying anyway. Turn the phone off. You are not God. That's why you have voicemail. Talk with your kids. Say, well, my kids don't talk. Well, just sit there. Ask a question. Find out what's going on in their life. You build those relationships while they're young. And then finally, affirm them and pray together at bedtime. I know you're tired. I come home sometime, and I really, I'll stop. I've told you this before. On that short drive home, I shut everything down. Sometimes I come in, and Becky will look at me and say, go for a run. A 30-minute run will do more for me than a nap. Sometimes she'll say, you're a better man if you'll go for a run. Maybe you just need to do something a little different, but don't veg out in front of that television while your wife puts the kids to bed. Don't veg out in front of that stupid computer while your wife puts the kids to bed. You got a DVR, hit pause. You got a computer, just leave it. It'll be there when you get back. But go up there and kneel down beside your son or your daughter's bed and you lay your hands upon them with your wife and you pray for them. There were times when my kids were teenagers, I'd sometimes go in and lay down on the bed with them. We didn't necessarily have to say anything, but all of a sudden, one of them began to talk. One night, one of them slid out of the bed and lay on the floor beside me. 
I was laying on the floor talking. He went to sleep. Some nights I'd go in and I'd lay across the foot of Amy's bed and we'd just talk. I can't tell you how many times I've come home late from a hospital visit or something and they'd all be in the bed with Becky and I'd end up having to sleep on the sofa. There's something not right about that. But don't let them go to sleep when you're home without taking time to pray. Kind words heal and help, and cutting words wound and maim. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? You can make a difference. You can make a difference in the eternity of your life. You can make a difference in the eternity of your child's life. Paul says, we opened up and we shared our very own lives with you. We were like a mother and a father. You can do this, sir. You may not know where to start, but you can practice one of each of these points. You can do this. So I want to pray for you as dads. Father, I thank you for every man in this church. And I'm asking every woman and every child in this church right now to pray with me for their husbands, for their dads, for those men who are yet to become dads. And I pray for them today that you will help them to see themselves as difference makers. God, they make a difference. I, help, I pray that you will help them to see themselves as men full of faith full of hope, full of love. I pray for a fresh baptism in your spirit that comes from heaven above, clothing them, Lord, enduing them with power. Jesus, their children and grandchildren are growing up in a world that is hostile to their faith. So I pray that there will be men of prayer. Lord, they're growing up in a world that's being fractured by social media, being fractured by all kinds of demands from sporting events to academic events, Lord, even sometimes to church events that keep families from being together. Help us to be wise in the choices that we make and how many things we choose to be part of. God, help us as men. Lord, to help make those decisions. But most of all, help us to be men of faith. And if you haven't crossed the line yet this morning, I had a young man tell me last week, with tears in his eyes. I've thought about it all week long. How that when his first child was born, he began to look at his daughter. And then his second child was born. He wanted to be a different kind of man. He wanted his children to have a different kind of life. And he turned his heart and life over to Christ. And what God is doing in them is amazing. That's why they call grace amazing. 
And his little girls will grow up blessed and highly favored because dad decided to follow Jesus. His little girls will know God. And they'll say to him one day, Dad, we're so proud of you. So if you haven't crossed that line yet, I'm inviting you, give your heart to Jesus Christ this morning. Say, Pastor, how do I do that? Just pray with me. You don't have to pray out loud. We say, Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for the diligence you showed to pay the ultimate price to save me from my sins. Thank you for the relationship that you offer me through the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you that when I go to sleep, you'll be watching over me. And when I wake, you'll be watching over me. And thank you for showing me my soul this morning, what I value, what's happening inside of me right now, what I want more than anything. And thank you for speaking your word of encouragement to me for what a difference you're making in my life right now. So as much as I know how, I give my life to you on this Father's Day. In Jesus' name. And while every head is bowed, if you prayed that prayer, would you let me know that and just lift your hand up? God bless you, sir. God bless you, honey. God bless you. Lift it up high. Say, Pastor, I'm praying that prayer with you this morning. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Somebody else, you say, Pastor, I'm praying that prayer today. God bless you. You can put it down. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Isn't grace amazing? Can we give the Lord a hand of praise? Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Well, I'm so thankful that you committed your life to Christ, and I'm so thankful for every man here.